Who has heard the letters of PTC put together in that order like that? <coughs> now, Christ College uh, is the PTC. In other words, uh, in the last year we became very aware that we had a problem. Here we had a great training college uh, in the Presbyterian Church in New South Wales, a training college that was both training people to be ministers in our churches and training people who weren't going to be ministers in our churches but uh, who wanted to get more training in order to be able to be more articulate Christians in whatever uh, area of life they were involved in. And so we, over the time of last year, we did some research and so on, and we came to the conclusion that we needed to somehow change our name. The PTC just didn't get it uh, when we were talking with university students, with young workers and so on. And four years ago, uh, the faculty had sat down and written a prospectus, Christ for All of Life. Now, has anyone seen the prospectus for Christ College? Just a, just a few people. It is a very unusual prospectus. It's not what you'd expect. But we uh, interviewed lecturers for one of the positions at the college and the guy, one of the candidates came in, put the prospectus on the table and said, are you guys really committed to this? And we said, yes. And he said, I'm in. I want in. Now, we wanted him as well. And that person you've had, Murray Smith, uh, has spoken at your house party. So the uh, Christ College is the branding name. It was much easier than changing our trading name or changing our name, fixing up our ABN and all that kind of thing. And it meant that we didn't disconnect the Presbyterian Theological Centre and all that past with what we were going on to do. So that's Christ College. Terrific. So what's your involvement in particular, Steve, at Christ College? <coughs> the college has, like a board, it has some responsibilities that are like a board and some that aren't. And so in the structure of the Presbyterian Church, we call that a committee. It's a committee that the assembly appoints to oversee the work of the college. I'm a member of that committee. And at this point in time, um, I happen to be um, the um, chief dog's body and, uh, and bottle washer and so on. Um, which what that means is I'm actually the convener of the committee. Well, that's good, because that brings me to my next question. So, um, as the chief's dog's body and the bottle washer, um, what, does that excite you about being involved in Christ College, or what really excites you to want to be involved in that organisation? Uh, very much. Um, the uh, new buildings of Christ College are very exciting. Every time I go there, I think, this is amazing. God has actually given us this. And uh, interestingly, in its architecture, the building invites you in. One of the things about having um, worked outside of Australia in Christian ministry is the fact that there just are so few people to teach the word of God and to pastor congregations. Mm -hmm. So for decades now, I've wanted to be involved somewhere and in some way training up people for the future. Um, both pastor teachers and those who, who won't be. And so Christ College really actually gets me involved in that. That's great. Okay, um, well, the final thing I want to ask is, so are you committed to it? And if so, why? Uh, that's a good question. Am I committed to it? 
Uh, one of the things about the structure of committees in the Presbyterian Church is that the members get elected on a three-year term. My term finishes uh, in June this year. Uh, when we get to, or just before the next assembly, I won't have to be uh, on the Christ College Committee. Uh, but thinking about it, uh, in many ways, uh, there's no committee I would rather be on, no involvement I would rather have in the wider Presbyterian Church than that involvement in Christ College. Terrific. Okay, well, we'll look forward to hearing more over time about um, how things work out there, and we hope it goes really well. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 1 to 34. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, who died when they approached the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to come whenever he chooses into the most high place behind the curtain in front of the atonement cover on the ark, or else he will die, because I appear in the cloud over the atonement cover. This is how Aaron is to enter the sanctuary area, with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He is to put on the sacred linen tunic with linen undergarments next to his body. He is to tie the linen sash around him and put on the linen turban. These are sacred garments, so he must bathe himself with water before he puts them on. From the Israelite community, he is to take two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain. He is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. He is to take some of the bull's blood and with his finger sprinkle it on the front of the atonement cover. Then he shall sprinkle some of it with his finger seven times before the atonement cover. He shall then slaughter the goat for the sin offering for the people and take its blood behind the curtain and do with it as he did with the bull's blood. He shall sprinkle it on the atonement cover and in front of it. In this way he will make atonement for the most, high, for the most holy place because of the uncleanness and rebellion of the Israelites, whatever their sins have been. He is to do the same for the, ten meet, for the tent of meeting, which is among them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one is to be in the tent of meeting from the time Aaron goes in to make atonement in the most holy place until, until he comes out, having made atonement for himself, his household, and the whole community of Israel. Then he shall come out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. 
He shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it in the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments he put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in the holy place and put on regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the sin offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull and the goat for the sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterwards, he may come into the camp. This is to be the last, lasting ordinance for you. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you must deny yourselves and do not do any work, whether native-born or an alien living among you, because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then, before the Lord, you will be clean from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of rest, and you must deny yourselves. It is a lasting ordinance. The priest who is anointed and ordained to succeed his father as high priest is to make atonement. He is to put on the sacred linen garments and to make atonement for the most, for the most high place and the tent of meeting and the altar, and for the priests and all the people of the community. This is to be a lasting ordinance for you. Atonement is to be made once a year for all the sins of the Israelites. And it was done as the Lord commanded Moses. Visions chapter 4, starting at verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let me just explain the T-shirt change. Our middle son went to Malaysia as part of his gap year and he brought back gifts as he returned. This was mine. Uh, when that came out of the packet, someone said, Hey, Dad! That can be your house party speaker T-shirt. <laughs> so here it is, my house party speaker T-shirt. 
just to remind us of uh, where we've come from. What we said that sin is. Those characteristics of God's nature, which we highlighted that he is loving, holy and righteous. And those four conclusions that we looked at. God must punish all sin. God forgives sin. It's in his character. It's in his commitment. Forgiveness and punishment are not mutually exclusive alternatives. And now we get to explaining that fourth assertion, punishment is necessary for forgiveness to occur. Now Stephen very uh, carefully and helpfully read to us uh, from Leviticus chapter 16 and the end of Ephesians chapter 4 and that really pulls it all together for you. So if you are hoping for a shorter talk, that's it. <laughs> you were thinking that there was something else coming. Uh, in 1976 I appeared in a major work for the higher school certificate. Miranda, the creator of this major work, uh, is between my sister and I in age uh, and you'll be pleased to know uh, that she went to the same school as my sister rather than the same school as me. That's because I went to a boys high school. The uh, major work was called Hands Turning Into Landscapes so if you want to come and have a look at them, uh, immortalised in drawings and paintings, uh, there they are. Her father was involved with another Christus, Christian businessman uh, as a partnership this other Christian businessman was the leader of the Christian professional body in that area. They were both involved in managing other people's funds, but the partner was siphoning off funds. He'd turned his back on Miranda's father. He had turned away from him. He had turned to wrongdoing, regardless of the consequences it would have for his close friend, colleague, partner, and brother in Christ. Now, one of the things which we don't pick up in Scripture uh, is that when Scripture talks about relating, uh, it uses language that says that we relate face to face. Okay? When we're relating well to one another, we're facing each other. When we have a married couple saying their vows to each other, they face each other. They don't face the walls away from each other and say their vows. That makes sense of all the biblical language which talks about turning away from God or about God turning his face towards us and granting us his favour. When we're in right relationship to God, we are face to face with him. When we sin and distrust his good intentions towards us and so on, what we're doing is turning away from him. Okay, Now, so that's why I use that language in talking about these two Christian brothers uh, together, working together. Now, for his illegal actions, the partner was jailed. But just think about the consequences for Miranda's father. Discovering that he had been wronged, that he had been betrayed and deceived by his partner. The loss of help of his partner in the business, that they had accepted all these responsibilities together. The loss of incomes. Now restrictions were placed on him in the managing of other people's funds as you can understand 
but he hadn't actually mismanaged other people's funds. Now, on my understanding, uh, those restrictions went on for the next 30 years. Because of the partnership, they were jointly held responsible for the fraud. Miranda's father's name was Mud, and in his profession, his name was really, really important. It was his livelihood that he was held in dishonour. So then let's think about the partner. The consequences for him, his wrongdoing ruptured the relationship with his friend, colleague, partner and brother in Christ. He was punished. Yep, he was jailed. Was there restitution? Nope, not as far as I know. So where does it leave the two men? What hope does the partner now have? of coming back into that relationship. He has no way to oblige Miranda's father to act in his favour. He has nothing that he can offer in exchange for the wrong that he's done and all of the consequences for Miranda's father and family. Now, when one human being wrongs another, as in that example, a very, very difficult situation is created. What of the situation when human beings wrong their holy, loving and righteous God? Well, if my fourth um, assertion is correct, that punishment is necessary for forgiveness to occur, then it makes sense of verses like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Well, let's look at what the Bible has to say and how it helps us. Now, in one sense, getting Stephen to read to you from Leviticus chapter 16 uh, was cheating. It was really uh, lining you up for confusion uh, because there are 15 chapters before you get to chapter 16 in Leviticus and those 15 chapters really help us to understand what is going on. There is a pattern that God establishes and that pattern is the pattern that moves from the right relationship, a relationship that is in good condition. Sin comes and it ruptures, it violates that relationship. How is that relationship to come back into good order? Well, now we might say forgiveness and I hope that you can see we'd only be talking about part of what is necessary if we're talking about forgiveness. And so what God gives is a pattern that begins with repentance, goes through punishment, with or without restitution, atonement, forgiveness and reconciliation or the restoration or renewal of that relationship. Now it's very important, what God gives us is to understand that between the breaking of the relationship and the restoration of the relationship, there is not one step. There are a number of steps and each of these steps is essential if that ruptured relationship is going to be restored. Now, the pattern we see set up in Leviticus it's set up by the way in which the chapters are written and they go through a series of offerings. 
They go through that series of offerings from chapter 1, verse 1, through to chapter 6, verse 7. It's repeated again in chapters 6, verse 8, to chapter 7, verse 21. And then in chapters 8, verse 1, through to 9, 24, it's repeated three times as the priesthood is established and Aaron and his sons are established as priests in Israel. Now, what does that look like? Well, I want you to turn to Leviticus chapter 4. And what we're going to read across these chapters 4, 5 and 6, and we're not going to read them all, we're going to really race, but I just uh, if you've got your Bibles open, you'll be able to see the steps as we go down. So chapter 4, verse 1 begins like this. When the, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, When anyone sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commands. And then what we're going to get in these chapters is a series. If this happens, if this happens, if, 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 if. All of these ways in which sin might occur. And then we're going to get what is happening when the people bring their sacrifices repeated over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now, these sacrifices are offered every time a person sins. The sacrifices are offered also without anyone having to come and offer them for sin morning and evening at the temple. Every seventh day, there's another set of sacrifices. The first day of every month, there's another set of sacrifices. Every year, there's the Day of Atonement. Okay? So in Israel, you get this picture over and over and over and over again. All right. So we go down verse 3. If the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, uh, and so on. If, verse 13, the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden. All right? And then... Uh, in verse uh, 14, we start to pick up what is happening. When they become aware of the sin they committed, the assembly must bring a young bull as a sin offering and present it before the tent of meeting. In this way, the priest shall make atonement for them and they will be forgiven. <coughs> See that? Atonement and forgiveness are two separate steps in this process. Verse 22, when a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the commands, and so on. It, we, we go on and on and on. Chapter 5, verse 1, if a person sins because he did not speak up when he hears a public charge, and we get this same pattern all the way through again, uh, <clears throat> we get to verse 5, when anyone is guilty in any of these ways, he must confess in what way he has sinned. And as a penalty for the sin he has committed, he must bring sorry, to the Lord a female lamb or a goat or a flock as a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for his sins. So now we're getting confession brought in. Now, um, it's a bit complicated actually to bring confession in, so let's link it to repentance. Okay? Uh, repentance will be the recognition that you've done something wrong and you're coming publicly to do something about it you're confessing it we will tend in the end to separate the two out uh, but hopefully uh, it's not illegitimate to put them together uh, in this okay and then we go down into chapter 6 and verse 5 and I want to read uh, the next couple of verses there okay it talks about the sin and then it says he must make restitution in full 
add a fifth of the value to it and give it all to the owner on the day he presents his guilt offering. And as a penalty, he must bring to the priest, that is, to the Lord, his guilt offering, a ram from the flock, one without defect and the proper value. And in this way, the priest will make atonement for him before the Lord, and he will be forgiven for any of these things that made him guilty. Okay, so you see, there is the pattern now sort of fanned out, each of the steps displayed for us. Repentance, punishment with the restitution in lots of situations, not in all situations, uh, atonement, forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, that is what's happening on the Day of Atonement, but you've got all the preparation for it in the first 15 chapters of the book of Leviticus. It makes a bit more sense when you read it now uh, after getting all of the detail. We can see the pattern working out in Solomon's prayer. You remember Solomon dedicates the temple after having had the temple built and Solomon prays this prayer. And it's a prayer that is perhaps strange because here is Israel at the pinnacle of its power and Solomon is saying, well, you might punish your people and you might send them into exile. There might be no rain. The crops might fail. All of these, their enemies might come and invade them and so on. Now he knew that because in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and in Leviticus chapter 26, as they come into the land, they are to recite a set of blessings and then a set of curses, a set of punishments, where the set of punishments is four times as long as a set of blessings that God gives his people. All that happens in the rest of Israel's history, you can see, is playing out of those blessings and curses that they are given before they enter the promised land. But when Solomon prays, he prays on the basis that this is the pattern that God has established for his people when they break their relationship with him through their sin, then there is a way back. So Solomon prays like this, 1 Kings 8, 33. When your people have been defeated by an enemy because they have sinned against you, and when they turn back to you, repent, and confess your name, praying and making supplication to you in the temple, then hear from heaven and forgive the sin of your people and bring them back to the land you gave to their forefathers. Okay, and he goes on. Uh, four more times rehearsing in his prayer this pattern that God has given to his people to come back into right relationship with him. Now, I said before that what's happening with the people is that they turn away from God. Distrusting him, they turn away to sin. What is God doing? Well, God says that he turns away from his people. If God punishes his people, it is an expression of that turning away. When people ask God to turn his face towards them, it's not so they can have a mystical experience, it's so that they come from this punishment to favour of God's face being turned towards them. That's the pattern. And that pattern is being worked out in the right way in Solomon's prayer because it begins with the people's recognition, their repentance of their sin. Now... It failed, okay? And so that's what we see in the rest of the Old Testament. Daniel's prayer in chapter 9 of Daniel is a prayer that says, this is what you established, God. We have sinned. We repent of our sin. Now we implore you to go through what you have said you will do. 
All right. So what then of these words? Repentance. Now, you may have heard that repentance in Greek is metanoio, which means a change of mind. That's pretty innocuous. It's absolutely true, but it's incomplete. All right? So repentance is a change of mind that recognises that the action is wrong and decides completely that that action, whether it be actual conduct or an attitude, is no longer part of the relationship. But repentance is also a change of heart, a change of heart that turns away from the conduct and turns back to the person sinned against. So in the Old Testament, Israel returns to the Lord. They're not just having a change of mind. I used to have sugar in my tea, now I don't. Right? No, no, no. Israel is turning back to God. So in the New Testament, when we get this word, that means change of mind, well, it's the word for return in the Old Testament and it's got to do with returning to the person of God in repentance. Turning away from sin, a change of mind and a change of heart. Now, repentance always precedes the forgiveness in the Bible. Okay, and that's something that we'll come to. Now, <clears throat> repentance can be faked or there are things which look like repentance. Perhaps principal among them is remorse. Remorse means I'm really sorry that I got caught out. Okay? And what remorse looks to do is to say, don't let me feel bad anymore. But it doesn't affect a change of mind and a change of heart that turns back to God. Okay. Punishment. Now, punishment and atonement are two things which go together but which are different things. Okay. The wrongdoing has to be the penalty of it has to be paid. And so that's what's being talked about in punishment. It can be initiated by the offender, by sacrifice, where the sacrificial victim is accepted as the substitute for the wrongdoer, in which case, obviously, repentance comes before punishment. And what happens to the sacrificial animal? What happens to the sacrificial animal? It dies. How is sin punished? Death. Okay? That's the provision that God makes. Death as the punishment for sin. Now, sometimes in the Old Testament we see direct punishment when the people don't repent and God punishes them directly. Punishment is always actually meted out. All right? Restitution. Restitution makes good the loss or injury suffered by the one wronged. And it's usually um, restitution of the whole of what was um, taken, defrauded, destroyed, lost, plus a fifth. Okay? And so that's very important for us to actually think about it. Repentance is actually going to imply down the track that there may be punishment and restitution really appropriate within that relationship. Atonement. Atonement averts the wrath of God. So the penalty for sin has been paid and God 
smells the pleasing aroma of the sacrifice and it's as though God says, that is music to my nostrils. Well, no, that's mixing your metaphors badly. But that's actually the picture, the pleasing aroma of the barbecued sacrifice turns God's anger away and God turns back. So propitiation and expiation uh, in words that you may have heard. Forgiveness means, and you can see how it corresponds to repentance, forgiveness means to no longer hold against the person the wrong they have done. The debt has been fully paid and the payment has been fully accepted. Okay? Reconciliation, the relationship is re-established, renewed, and in one sense, you've got to think about it, on a better footing because the wrongdoer has actually renounced that attitude, that action, and so on. Okay? So, uh, that is the pattern that God established, the pattern that failed in the Old Testament, the pattern that is fulfilled in Jesus. The New Testament calls that pattern a shadow of the things to come. And in Hebrews and in chapters 9 we see the contrast between the old, the shadow pattern and the new, the fulfilled pattern in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Were not able to pay for the sin. In the end, they had to be repeatedly offered. Verse 14, on the other hand, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that led to death so that we may serve the living God? Going on in chapter 10, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, they can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins, so the Day of Atonement, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So the pattern that God established and lays out for the people in Leviticus, which is then played out every day, every week, every month, every year of their lives, the pattern which failed at the end of the Old Testament is the pattern fulfilled in Jesus. And so that language that we saw in regard to the pattern is applied to the work of Jesus. Each aspect of that pattern is applied to the work of Jesus. So, as you make note of those verses, let me read some of them to you. Romans chapter 8, verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do, in that it was weakened by the sinful nature, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering and so he condemned sin in sinful man. See what is being focused on there is Jesus taking the punishment, Jesus paying the penalty. 
atonement. John 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only not for not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world. Or chapter 4 verse 10 this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Forgiveness. Well, we saw that in Luke and Acts. In Matthew chapter 26, the Last Supper, when Jesus celebrates the Passover with his disciples, then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And in chapter 5 of Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, reconciliation is to the fore. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though we were making his appeal through as though God were making his appeal through us. We beseech on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So it's it's very helpful when you actually see the pattern and see the steps in the pattern to see how Christ fully fulfills the pattern and deals with all of those aspects. So then, are we to forgive like God? Well, the answer is yes. Stephen read it to us from Ephesians. But there's probably another question that we should ask as well. Are we to punish like God? Now, let's look at those two questions quickly. Are we, each one, as individuals to forgive like God? Yes. Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 31. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Are we, each one, to forgive like God? Yes, we are. Very clearly stated. And then it goes on, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly beloved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Okay? So it actually says, God expressed his love for us by forgiving us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got that pattern laid out for us so that we can see now that's all i want to say i think that's very clear uh, we could come and sort of elaborate on that but hopefully you get the point are we each one individually to punish like god well no we're not romans chapter 12 verse 19 says do not take revenge my friends but leave room for god's wrath for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Okay, now, 
there again, very clear. It's going to be helpful for us to read further uh, in Romans chapter 12 and in Romans chapter 13. Why is it that God says, mine is the place for wrath, it is mine to avenge? Well, the answer is threefold. Firstly, all sin, capital S, small s, is against God. Not all sin is against human beings. God alone has the authority to establish what is right and wrong. All truly right and good conduct obeys his commands out of a relationship of love with him. All sin involves disobedience to his commands, rejecting his authority, turning away from his love, distrusting him, despising him, and loving something or someone else other than him. There is no sin that we commit that actually doesn't relate to God. Okay? Now, secondly, God punishes directly as we raced through the Old Testament. That was part of what I was trying to underline and, out, and outline for us. He initiates and directs all punishment. There is no impersonal cause and effect. We cannot read the Bible and think other than God is the one who directs all punishment. Now, he appoints agents to whom he gives authority to punish. Those agents are the government, church leaders, masters and parents. Now, just for husbands, whilst you might be saying to yourself, hang on, there's something in these structured relationships, I remember them. Okay, there's government and citizens, uh, there's masters and slaves, there's parents and children, there's husbands and wives. All of these are structured relationships. Punish, punish, punish. No. The husband is never given authority to punish the wife. All right? It actually is given in the other relationships, not in the husband-wife relationship. So God punishes directly, but human beings we punish indirectly. That means we defer all punishment to the divinely appointed authorities. So when God says that we are to leave it to him, part of our leaving it to him will be that punishment can actually be enacted through these divinely appointed authorities. We don't have to say that man shot his neighbour in anger and killed him, but we can't do anything about it because we're humans. If God strikes him down dead, he'll be punished. If not, no. God says he gives authorities to punish. Now, Romans 12 and 13 are offered often separated by the chapter division and by a failure to um, repeat the language across uh, the two sections. Before we read that, however, the third reason why we are not to punish like God is God is never mistaken. He's never as mistaken as to whether wrong has been done. He always knows. He doesn't say, well, well that's okay. That's a good thing, when clearly it wasn't. No, God always knows when wrong has been done. He's never mistaken as to who the wrongdoer was. I mean, that's really one of the difficulties. Which one of you two threw that glass of water on the floor? He did. You, 
right? God is never mistaken as to who the wrongdoer was. He's never mistaken as to what punishment corresponds to the wrong done. Because you've spilt that water on the floor, I am going to make you mow the lawns for the next 100 years and you will not get a cent. Punishment not corresponding to the wrong done. He's never mistaken about the goal of punishment. What's the goal of his punishment? God's honour. Okay. So, we are not to punish like God. We are different from God in these three essential uh, ways. But God provides agents for punishment. And it comes, as I said, out of Romans 12 and 13. Now, the easy way to pick this up is to read it in the New American Standard Translation because it repeats the similar words. So let me try and read that to you. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 starts like this. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he is thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you will heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause for, of fear for good behaviour, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger. You see there, revenge, vengeance, avenger, picks up the language who brings, the, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. So God establishes authorities in human relationships so that appropriate punishment can be given without having to recur to God at every instance, as it were. Uh, God, please paint Peter purple if he threw the glass on the floor. You know, I mean, w that doesn't happen, right? But God um, establishes authorities through whom punishment can be given. Now, are we to forgive like God, each one individually? Yes. Are we to punish like God, each one individually? No. We're to, punish, we're to punish through uh, the divinely appointed authorities. But do you note a difficulty in that? The difficulty in that is that the closer you are to being the one offended, the more our problems as human beings come into enacting appropriate punishment. Now, I think that the most difficult of those, therefore, is parents. Right? because it is most often the case that it's our children who we're punishing and we therefore are often likely to be the ones wronged and the ones punishing. 
when in our law courts judges pronounce verdicts on criminals, part of what we do in our law courts is to separate the judge from the wrongdoer so that the justice can be meted out, we say, impartially, right, without it being personal vengeance. Now, these things will become very important as we go on in our next two talks to look at how forgiveness works out in our day-to-day -day life. And there are going to be two kinds of forgiveness. You might like to think of what that will be. And maybe the second kind of forgiveness we'll have to characterise in another way. But there we have it. The pattern that God established, failed in the Old Testament, fulfilled in Christ, is actually the pattern that applies to human relationships as well. We are to forgive like God, but we are not each one individually to punish like God. Thanks very much. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for the completeness of your revelation. Sometimes it's hard work for us to put together all that you tell us, but it is always rewarding to come to your word, to seek understanding, to find through the work of your spirit in us the understanding and wisdom necessary to live for you. So we pray that as we continue to look at forgiveness, at what your word teaches us, that we might grow in our understanding and that we, out of love for you, might put into practice in our lives what you have shown us particularly in and through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.